Finally, I have arrived where I have so long desired to be, folded in the bosom of our Holy Mother, the Roman Catholic Church, and I humbly beg you to honour me with your benevolent commands. I have shown the world that, in order to obey your holiness, I have been ready to relinquish my throne, placed as it was in the midst of irremissible sin. It is a greater glory to obey your holiness than to rule from the highest throne. Now that I am rid of every human greatness, I implore your holiness to regard me with the same paternal benevolence with which you have always afforded me. Together with my blood and my life, I offer your holiness all that I have with the blind obedience that is due to you, and implore your holiness to deal with me as your holiness may see fit for the greater benefit of our holy church. To her, and to your holiness as her one true head, I have dedicated the rest of my life, with the ardent desire to employ it to the greater glory of God. Christina of Sweden writing to Pope Alexander the Seventh, fifth of November, sixteen fifty-five. Hello, and welcome to The Other Half. Episode 4.23, Christina of Sweden, Queen of the Flying Squadron. It feels very odd to be sitting here writing and then recording an episode about a queen, given the recent death of Queen Elizabeth II. Hers was a life defined by a steadfast devotion to duty, very different from that of Christina. My thoughts are with the royal family and everyone who shares a sense of loss at one of our greatest ever monarchs. But the show must go on, and so, on with it. Last time, Christina of Sweden abdicated her throne and departed into exile. This was a profoundly shocking act, but one that had been long in the planning. She had fallen out of love with reigning. It was time for a change. Today, we will see her arrive in Rome and make her mark on a very different court from the one in her homeland. But before we get to that, I have a couple of notices to dish out. First, you may remember that I had Brie Jensen on from the fantastic Pontifax podcast at the start of this season to talk all things popes. She did a magnificent job and was kind enough to let me go on her show and discuss Pope Joan and Marazia. I had a ton of fun making the episode and I really think you'll enjoy it. I'm not entirely sure when it will go up, but I'll be sure to share it on the show's socials when it does. This is also your very, very last chance to vote on the topic for the next season of The Other Half. The vote will close at midnight on Monday the 12th of September. It's now incredibly close at the top of the vote, so you really shouldn't miss out. In order to have you say you will have to become one of my wonderful patrons, which you can do for as little as a dollar a month. If that sounds good to you, head on over to patreon.com forward slash The Other Half Podcast. To all my new listeners, welcome. To the rest of you, welcome back. 
Christina didn't hang around for long after her abdication. She spent a few days getting her remaining affairs in order before slipping out of the kingdom disguised as a knight by the name of Count Donna. Wearing a sword by her side, a musket slung over her shoulder, men's riding boots and sitting her stride a steed on a male saddle, she must have experienced a freedom to be herself in a way she had never felt before. She journeyed through Denmark and the Low Countries, having a lovely old time wherever she went. Local dignitaries were intrigued to see this controversial former queen, who was cavorting around like a man, and were rarely disappointed. While in Hamburg, for instance, she met with an envoy from the Holy Roman Emperor, whom she paid the curious courtesy of putting a skirt over her trousers. Spies abounded. Europe was desperate to know what she was doing and where she would go. One was disgusted by her, quote, Amazonian behaviour, and that, quote, she was mistaken for a man, for in her discourse they say she talks loudly and swears notably. Her next stop was in Antwerp in the Spanish Netherlands, otherwise known in modern Belgium, where she filled her time with, quote, excursions, music and visits to the theatre, and thought of the city as, quote, one of those happy islands that breathe quiet and peace in the midst of the tumultuous ocean. Controversy followed Christina like a shadow, and she couldn't resist sticking her oar in where it wasn't wanted. For example, she got involved in an intrigue between France and Spain that resulted in Cardinal Mazarin, the French chief minister, publishing a series of pamphlets accusing her of being a lesbian, a prostitute, and a harlot. Of course, Antwerp was never intended to be her final destination. She was waiting on the golden ticket from Rome, an invitation to join the papal court and join the Catholic flock. But it was not coming anytime soon, so she took matters further into her own hands and travelled to Innsbruck, a favoured spot for the Holy Roman Emperor. She stayed there as an honoured guest of Archduke Ferdinand, and it was in his chapel on the 3rd of November 1655 that she crossed the Rubicon. Dressed all in black, she knelt before the altar and read the Tridentine Creed, declaring that she was now and forever a Catholic. Shortly afterwards, she wrote the letter to the Pope that I read at the start of the episode before finally setting off for the Eternal City. And she didn't do so alone. She had left Sweden with just four attendants, but in the intervening months, she had amassed a retinue of around 250, with around the same number of horses, not to mention caravans, and a long baggage train. They took a long, leisurely route at the Pope's request. He needed time to prepare for her arrival. So instead of heading directly south once they'd crossed the Alps, she headed east towards Ferrara and Bologna, before finally entering Rome just before Christmas. Though she'd come with quite a crowd, her first entrance was surprisingly sedate. It came during the night, and there was no reception committee. She immediately had an audience with the Pope, where she made the first submissive gesture that she had made to her entire life by sitting on a plain stool just below him. After a lifetime of rejecting the idea that a man could be made superior to her, she now acknowledged that to the Pope. Her presence in the Vatican was quite a break from tradition. Women were not usually permitted to sleep within its walls. Remember the scandal when Olympia Medelkini had been installed by Pope Innocent after his accession. 
she had been assigned for her use eight rooms at the top of the Tower of the Winds, all designed by Luigi Bernini, the brother of the more famous Gian Lorenzo. Two days later, she slipped out of the city again, but this time it was to make her grand formal entrance. She arrived by crossing the Milvian Bridge and through the People's Gate, accompanied by ranks of nobles and mounted soldiers. She declined the use of a carriage, preferring to be on horseback herself. Thousands showed up to cheer her arrival. It was like a giant homecoming. Once again, she travelled to St. Peter's and publicly demonstrated her faith in front of everyone. Shortly afterwards, she took on a new confirmation name to add to her own baptismal name. In deference to the Pope, she was now Christina Alexandra. She did not linger long within the walls of the Vatican, moving to the Farnese Palace near the Campo de Fiori, where Caterina Sforza had once lived. It was prestigious, gorgeous. It had been designed by Michelangelo, but most importantly, it was free. She had done it. She had thrown off the shackles of her cold, dark, repressed homeland and was now living in a stunning Renaissance palace in the heart of Rome. Happy days. Over the next few days, she spent a great deal of time with the Pope, who had seen her as the drop of water that could beget a flood of conversions to Catholicism. And at first, she certainly talked a good game. She declared to him, somewhat implausibly, that she was incapable of immoral action, and he admired her intelligence and knowledge of art and culture. But it didn't take too long for the masks to shift somewhat, and for Pope Alexander to realise that she wasn't exactly the shining example of born-again Catholic fervour that he had hoped. He thought her too much of a libertine, insufficiently interested in piety and reflection. It was noted that, amongst her great collection of books, there were very few devotional texts, certainly not any that she was willing to read, and she was singularly uninterested in discussion of spiritual matters. She was somewhat damned by faint praise by Cardinal Pallavicino, who would later write a biography of her, and attempted to show that she was at least trying to improve. Quote, Her behaviour is only gradually getting better. With her forthright, manly disposition, she lacks any sense of obligation to act with feminine reserve and comply with the Italian's own deliberate circumspection. She gives full vent to her natural high spirits, and that excitability which makes it impossible for her to stay still for long or maintain gravity of voice and expression so necessary if people are to respect her and not merely disparage her. The Pope believes that, though bitter to the taste, the fruit is sound at heart, and trusts that time will bring it to ripeness and perfection. For her part, Christina found that she had been somewhat misled when it came to Roman liberalism. She had expected to see a more tolerant atmosphere in the Eternal City than in her homeland, but in that she would be disappointed. Rome was as strict as Sweden. She attended pageants, jousts and plays put on for her enjoyment, but she was unable to put on anything herself. To put it bluntly, she was flat broke, and her servants had to resort to stealing from the Farnese Palace in lieu of pay, which, as you might imagine, greatly irked her hosts. She wanted to assemble a great academy of scholars and thinkers, as she had in Stockholm, 
but all she could manage was a small meeting of nobles and clergy, accompanied by quite a lot of music. Musicians were cheap. One of her most prominent guests was Cardinal Decio Azzolino. He had a, let's say, mixed reputation. Gregorio Letti described him as engaging in, quote, amorous liaisons less than decent and some other defects. He had been a favourite of Olympia Medalkini and had risen through the Vatican ranks through her patronage. He wasn't particularly handsome or wealthy, but he possessed a tremendous wit, charm and learning, which counted for a great deal in Christina's eyes. He was also something of a financial wizard, which was a great boon to her troubled accounts. The two spent a great deal of time together, alone, and it wasn't long before the gossips began to wag their tongues. Two controversial characters alone together, it was always going to be so. The extent of their passions is unclear, but there is little doubt that the cardinal enthralled her. We have a lot of warm letters between them, where they express their devotion to each other. In one she wrote that, quote, The affection I feel for you will have no other end or bounds but those of my life itself. There is no doubt that she did love him. But I think it is highly unlikely that she ever had sexual relations with him. Of course, many people believe the more salacious rumours. Some even speculated that she may have borne him a child. But to her, as I've said before, sex with a man was a submissive act she could not tolerate. Whether she was a lesbian, asexual, or something in between, she would not bed a man. This she would make clear in a giving thanks to God in her memoirs where she wrote, quote, My ambition, my pride, incapable of submitting to anyone, and my disdain, despising everything, have miraculously saved me. I admit that, had I not been born a girl, my temperament might have led me into terrible disorder. But you, who all my life have made me love glory and honour more than any pleasure, you have saved me from the misfortunes that I would have been plunged into by chance, by the freedom of my rank and by the ardour of my temperament. I would no doubt have married if I had not recognised in myself the strength which you have given me to resist the pleasures of love. Her relationship with Azalina was not just one of mutual love, but also mutual opportunity. They were useful to each other. Azalina was the leader of a reform-minded group of cardinals called the Squadrano Valante, or Flying Squadron. We talked about this excellent name group in episode 4.20 regarding the conclave after the death of Pope Innocent X. If you recall, the College of Cardinals were generally divided into pro-French or pro-Spanish camps, but the Flying Squadron were unattached crossbenchers. They were rebellious souls, eager to shake up the status quo. In other words, Christina's sort of people. They gave her an in into Vatican business, and she could provide them with the patronage of a queen. She may no longer rule a kingdom or have a tremendous amount of hard power, but the title of queen still had validity, both in Rome and the other royal courts of Europe. They were insurgents, outsiders, and she was their golden ticket.
Now that she had a group of like-minded people around her, Christina was able to do what she loved, and that was to get involved in a bit of mischief. In this season, we've talked a lot about Naples, most notably, of course, during the series on Joanna. At this time, it was ruled by Habsburg Spain, but Cardinal Mazarin, the chief minister of France, had its square in his crosshairs. He was preparing an expeditionary force, but he was already thinking about how he would like to run Naples once it was conquered. King Louis XIV was still 18 and unmarried, and there were no other French royals who were suitable, at least not yet. What Mazarin needed was someone to keep the throne warm for some future French prince. Someone with no significant responsibilities of their own. Someone without children. Someone experienced. Someone internationally respected and recognised. Christina could not have been more perfect for this enterprise. Now what's interesting is why she was so enthusiastic with this project. After all, she had already given up being a queen once... Why would she want to become one again so soon after? Well, Naples was no Sweden. That's as clear now as it was then. But quite possibly, she was struggling to adjust to her new life. As much as she resented the pressures of rulership and the spotlight, its absence was equally hard for her to bear. The crown of Naples, a stopgap bit of rulership, was, in many ways, the perfect situation. Far from the constant pressure to marry that had dominated her time as Queen of Sweden, France would demand that she remain childless and husbandless, which would suit her just fine. Her imagination went into overdrive. She imagined herself in her father's role, the great Swedish soldier king Gustavus Adolphus. She ordered new armour for herself, new liveries and military uniforms. She imagined her literally conquering her new kingdom with her at the head of an army. Barely containing her excitement, she set off to Paris to meet with Cardinal Mazarin in person. But, of course, this plan was top-secret stuff. Not even Azalina knew about it. So she needed a pretext. So she told everyone she was just popping back to Sweden to discuss financial matters. She boarded the ship and after a week's voyage landed in Marseille and spent the next few weeks in leisurely progress up towards Paris. She was accompanied by Henry, the Duke of Guise, a 42-year-old Lothario who Cardinal Mazarin had sent to take stock of their guest. He wrote the following back to the court after meeting Christina. Quote, She is not tall, but she is shapely with a large rump, fine arts and pretty white hands but more of a man than a woman, with one shoulder higher than the other, though she hides this so well with her bizarre clothes and her way of walking that one could really lay odds on whether the defect is there at all. Her face is long, but not to a fault, and all her features are long too and quite pronounced. Her nose, aquiline, her mouth rather large, but not disagreeably so. Her teeth, passable, her eyes really beautiful and full of fire. Her complexion, despite a few pockmarks, quite clear and pretty. Her face is nicely shaped but framed by the most extraordinary coiffure. She wears a man's wig, very heavy, and piled high in front, hanging thickly at the sides and fair at the ends. The top of her head is a mass of hair. At the back it looks vaguely like a woman's hairstyle. Sometimes she wears a hat. Her bodice is laced crosswise at the back. It is made almost like a man's vest, 
with her shirt showing all the way around between it and her skirt. The skirt is very poorly fastened and not very straight. She always wears a lot of powder and lots of face cream, and she hardly ever wears gloves. She wears man's shoes, and she sounds and moves like a man as well. She loves to show what a fine horsewoman she is. She really glories in it, and is at least as proud of it as the great Gustav, her father, could have been. She's very civil and a great flatterer. She speaks eight languages, and above all French, as if she had been born in Paris. She knows more than the whole of our academy at the Sorbonne combined, is admirably well-informed about painting, as about everything else, and knows more about our court intrigues than I do. In short, she is quite extraordinary. As you might expect, rumour and scandal were hot on her heels. While in Lyon, she met the Marquise Elizabeth of Castellane, a 22-year-old widow renowned as the most beautiful woman in France. Christina was entranced by her, enough to delay her departure so she could spend more time in her company. As was her wont, she wrote her an extravagant love letter. Quote, Ah, if I were a man, I would fall at your feet, submissive and languishing with love. I would spend days, I would spend nights in contemplation of your divine attractions. Your beautiful eyes are the innocent authors of all my woes. I will spend the rest of my life in a state of bittersweet enchantment while I await some happy reversal that will change my sex. In this sweet hope, I count the days of my life. Now, don't get overexcited. This isn't quite what it seems. To be sure, this is a passionate, cheeky, flirtatious letter, but nothing more. 17th century letter writers were far more exuberant in their passions, and it did not appear that their relationship developed beyond these letters. Indeed, there's no evidence they ever wrote to each other again after Christina's departure. She then moved on to Fontainebleau, where she was entertained by the fabulously wealthy and extravagantly named heiress Anne-Marie-Louise Henriette, the Duchess of Montpensier. Nicknamed La Grande Mademoiselle, she had taken the losing side in the France Civil War and was semi-exiled from court. The two had already exchanged many letters and had a lot in common. They loved outdoor pursuits and were outcasts in a man's world. She finally arrived in Paris on the 8th of September 1656. Along with Rome, visiting Paris had been a lifelong ambition for Christina. She was given a royal welcome, with 22,000 soldiers lining the streets to welcome her to the city. She was taken to the Louvre Palace, then still under construction, which would be her home during her visit. She had plenty of formal occasions, including Mass at Notre Dame, where she scandalised onlookers by barely praying and chatting throughout, as well as being apparently insufficiently penitent during confession. Many of her social calls were taken aback by her forthright nature and colourful language, but the people of Paris loved her. She acted more like a tourist than a visiting dignitary, eschewing her entourage to explore the city alone. She went to bakeries to see bread being made, publishers to see books being printed, and rummaged around in market stalls to find something that took her fancy. She saw most of the city while there, but she still hadn't met Mazarin or the king, who were becoming increasingly conspicuous by their absence. They were in Compagne, the king's summer residence, which meant that Christina had one last step on her long journey. King Louis was so keen to meet this mysterious self-exiled queen 
that he couldn't wait that long to see her. He and his brother Philippe disguised themselves as minor nobles and rode off to meet her at an overnight stop at Chantilly. But you have to get out pretty early to fool Christina, who had studied their portraits very recently while at the Louvre. She immediately recognised them, and they travelled the rest of the journey together, and were greeted by the French court and thousands of guard soldiers when they arrived at Compiègne. Everyone was dressed in their finest court dress and uniforms, the ladies in particular in spectacular long silk gowns, which made Christina's outfit all the more surprising. She had mixed male and female fashions in her typical manner, wearing a short dress, a man's shirt and shoes, and an ill-fitting black wig. The crowd was stunned. One onlooker recorded in her memoirs, quote, She looked like a sort of Egyptian street girl, very strange and more alarming than attractive. But once I had looked at her for a bit and got used to her clothes and odd hairstyle, I saw she had beautiful, lively eyes and a sweet expression, also rather proud. She seemed taller than we had heard and less hunchbacked, but her hands were not as fine as people had said. They were really so dirty, it was impossible to see any beauty in them. It really is remarkable in these descriptions of Christina, both how much her reputation preceded her and how surprising onlookers found her appearance. In a world of puffed-up, painted peacocks following the strict rules of polite society, she cut her own very unique dash. She would spend a week at Compiègne, enjoying a mixture of plays, dances and local visits, alongside, of course, talks with Cardinal Mazarin. She was also reunited with La Grande Mademoiselle, who came late to her chambers to see her on her last night. They had a long chat, and Christina tried to persuade her to leave her husband and run off to Rome with her. After all, she said, quote, even the best husband isn't worth staying for. As Christina set off the following day on her return to Rome, on her own, except with three male attendants, La Grande Mademoiselle reflected, quote, how odd it is for a queen to be without a woman of her own. Off she went, this Swedish Amazon, followed only by her pathetic troop, without any retinue, without any grandeur, without a bed, without any silver plate, without any mark of royalty. In her recent biography of Christina, Veronica Buckley wrote this about her visit to France. Quote, she left a mixed impression behind her. Her intelligence and learning had made her some admirers, but her sharp wit and frequent jokes had left many embarrassed and resentful. They now took their revenge in gossip and pamphlets, describing her as a stocky little hunchback, an ill-bred savage, a lesbian, a clown, a whore. This would not be the last time she would visit France, nor would these words be the harshest that would be thrown her way. Scandal was never far from Christina, and her next visit to the kingdom would see an impulsive decision cast a further pall over her beleaguered reputation. <laughs> 